the first time I had a personal encounter with Harry Potter, with the story of Harry Potter, was with the fourth book. My mom bought the book on tape from Costco. And this was when it was literally on tape. It was on a tape deck. And we were going up to Sequoia. As a family, we would go up to Sequoia somewhat frequently. If there was a place where we camped as a family regularly, it was Sequoia National Park. And the drive from Los Angeles to Sequoia takes quite a long time. At this point, I think I was 13. Because I was deeply, deeply into music. And... I was so into music that I would travel everywhere with a massive case of CDs. It probably had 100, 120 CDs in it. I would buy used CDs all the time from used CD shop near my house. And so I was a bit of a moody teenager. 13 was like the, the hard time for me with my family. And I would go almost everywhere with my CD player and my hundred or so CDs, because this is right before iPods become a thing. iPods became such a big thing for me. I was so in love with my iPod the first time I got it. But at that point, I was lugging around this massive CD case and a CD player everywhere and basically tuning my family out whenever I could. And so my mom had this book on tape. And their goal was to have something to listen to on the drive up to Sequoia. And I thought that it was sort of childish and silly and wasn't sure why they were doing it. It didn't feel very sensible to me. But they were going to do what they were going to do, and I didn't really care. I had my CDs. I'd be listening to... Uh, at this point, I was probably pretty into Nirvana and Jane's Addiction and maybe some Blink-182... Uh, it was kind of a random hodgepodge of bands. And at the beginning of the trip, I put my headphones on, started playing my CD, and I don't remember what it was, which is maybe telling. Right around this point, I probably was listening to a lot of 14 Shades of Grey by Stained, which is kind of a new metal band that doesn't really matter especially compared to my feelings towards Harry Potter now. And my parents put on the Harry Potter audiobook. And they had never read any of the books, and my brother had never read the book. And they started listening from the fourth book. The fourth book opens kind of dark. And I had my headphones in, but little pieces of it would drift to me over the headphones. You know, I'd be sitting there rocking out to my stain, and suddenly I'd start hearing a sentence about a family who died with very peaceful, placid looks on their face. It was creepy and kind of mysterious. That's the way the fourth book begins. It's dark. It sets the tone for the way this book is going to make a transition. 
in the previous books, the danger has been contained to moments when the children go and seek it out. But in this book, the danger goes from being very contained to being ever-present towards the end of the book. And right at the beginning, we get a point of view that isn't Harry's. It's one of the few times in all of the Harry Potter books where you learn a bunch of information that Harry couldn't possibly know. Information about the town as a whole, about the Riddle family, about the groundskeeper in his life. You get the perspective of a non-magic user. They call them muggles in the Harry Potter world. And it is a kind of fascinating little vignette. The story opens with this dark flash, this moment, that then goes back to Harry. And I was sitting in my car on the way up to Sequoia, and it probably was not very long before I was going from not paying attention, intentionally, adamantly not paying attention to pausing my music because you know the songs die they kind of fade out in between songs and so maybe before the next one came on I would pause for a while just to listen to part of the story act like I was still too cool for school like I wasn't listening to Harry Potter but kind of secretly be paying attention and then start the next song up again The second thing that's really cool about the fourth Harry Potter book is that you get to see a lot of the wider wizarding world. Harry Potter as a whole, as a series, takes place almost exclusively within Hogwarts, and you get to visit a couple of non-Hogwarts magical locations. Diagon Alley is a kind of popular one, and... There's a little village next to Hogwarts called Hogsmeade that you visit a couple of times in the series. But mostly, almost all of the books takes place within the castle. And this book, the fourth book, has a long scene that takes place not within any magical location that we've ever been to before that will ever be again, and shows you a lot of the wider wizarding world in a way that most of the other moments, most of the other books don't. They go to the Quidditch World Cup. Quidditch is the wizarding version of football, of soccer. And the Quidditch World Cup, much like the Football World Cup, is played once every four years. And it's also something that a lot of people travel to from all over the world. It isn't like the Football World Cup because there's not a bunch of teams, there's just two. So it's sort of like the Super Bowl that way. But under the rules of Quidditch, games can go on for multiple days. So it's kind of like boxing in that a game can be finished in 45 minutes if they get really lucky, or a game can go crazy, crazy long if nobody is able to win. It's highly variable game length. And so they have this big event for the World Cup thinking like, oh, maybe it'll go a week. Who knows? It, it could go that long. And there is a lot of opportunity to see adults and wizards 
who aren't related to education. Almost every adult in the series is a teacher or a groundskeeper or someone who has something to do with the school. And at the World Cup that you visit right at the beginning of the fourth book, you meet a ton of adults that don't have anything to do with the wizard, that don't have anything to do with Hogwarts, that are just normal wizards, bureaucrats, people who work for the government, people who do promotional work, reporters, all sorts of stuff. It's kind of everything. And it's neat to see that many different people. Back in my parents' minivan, at this point, I think we were driving a Toyota Previa. But it's also possible that that had crashed and that we had rented a car to make the trip up to Sequoia. I almost certainly ignored a lot of the Quidditch World Cup stuff the first time through. It's very dense. It's hard to make a lot of understanding out of that part without seeing the rest of the series. So I'm sure it kind of just whizzed by me without me thinking too much about it. And I was back in my music listening while we were traveling up the interstate, driving up I-5, and I was switching between probably maybe a Weird Al CD, Running With Scissors. Hard to remember. But I was still definitively ignoring the Harry Potter that was going on that the rest of the family was listening to. Within the story of Harry Potter, one of the things that this book does the best of all the books up till this one, and kind of even of the books that follow, is that it both pays off and sets up stuff for the next several books. J.K. Rowling always knew there would be seven. And this book is the halfway point, the axis on which the series turns. I talk about how it gets darker, and it does. And that was such an intentional, conscious choice on Rowling's part that it's very cool to watch as she connects threads from the first three books, but shows the underlying darkness that bound those threads together. There were dark moments in the first three books, but there were probably darker ones in the books to come. One of the threads that she picks back up from the earlier books and then reveals the much deeper darkness is the question of house elves. House elves are short little gnome-like creatures that have these big floppy bat ears. And Harry saves a house elf in the second book. It is a house elf that is owned by his schoolyard enemy's family, Draco Malfoy, and he sets that house elf free. But the fact that house elves are functionally an enslaved race is a very weird undertone for the books. And what's more, they are an enslaved race that adamantly 
supports their own enslavement. These days, when people look back and problematize Harry Potter, that is one thing that gets flagged very heavily. There are some good themes in Harry Potter about anti-racism and about fighting back against ideas around purity, but the idea that J.K. Rowling wrote in a race of creatures that adamantly, consistently supports its own enslavement and almost shuns the one character who gets freed who's always kind of problematic. And not in a way that I realized when I first read it, but in a way that becomes very obvious if you start thinking about comparisons to Uncle Tom. There's one character who notices it and who speaks up about it. And in some ways it's treated as kind of a joke, but that character is also the moral compass of the series and is sort of J.K. Rowling's surrogate. So in some ways she got to create her own straw man and then criticize it. Hermione Granger is very opposed to the enslavement of the house elves. And it is an interesting and uncomfortable concept, I think, to grapple with when you're reading it from that perspective. But the house elves do play a very big part in this series. Dobby was freed in a previous book, and he got a job working for money for Hogwarts. And is very excited to be doing it, and is also kind of a pivotal character in aiding Harry at one point. One of the other very interesting, fascinating, cool characters that is introduced is a morally gray good guy. He is a kind of a wizard detective who was pretty willing to do some crazy stuff to catch the bad guys. He has a reputation of being very intense, very hard-nosed, and he also shows the kids some very intense magic very early on. You get a peek into some of the broader magical world. Some of the way that the wizarding world works behind the scenes. And at one point, he even does something that's objectively abusive to one of the students. It's a student who's a villain, and so it's a moment that's played for laughs, sort of. But at the same time, you are kind of horrified? I don't know if 13-year-old me was horrified. I might have just laughed. At a certain point in the car, I did put down any pretense that I wasn't listening to Harry Potter. 
put my headphones and my CD away and just paid attention. It's probably a six, seven hour drive. And the book itself is, I think, 14, 15, maybe longer, maybe more like 20 hours. And so we still had plenty of the book left to go. And once we were in Sequoia, we set up the tent, we got everything ready. We got ready for dinner. We did all the stuff that we normally do. But anytime you get to a national park like that, they're still driving. And so every time we would get in the car, we would be very quiet, very nice, good kids. My mom always loves to talk about what good kids we are. We would sit and listen and just pay attention to Harry Potter. And we listened to the whole thing over that journey. And after not too long, we went out and found Harry Potter 1, 2, and 3 on audiobook. So I could listen to those too. So we could listen to those too. Audiobook is probably the main experience I have had with Harry Potter. Of the double digit number of times I have quote unquote reread the series, more than half is certainly an audiobook version. It's a very good audiobook, too, read by Jim Dale. High quality stuff. I think he won some awards for it. I keep talking about how dark the fourth book gets. The arc of the Harry Potter story, the arc of the world, goes like this. When Harry was very young, a very evil wizard, kind of a Hitler of the wizarding world, tried to kill him, specifically. He was going around killing lots of people, but it was still kind of surprising that this wizard tried so hard to kill Harry Potter. He broke into his parents' house one night, he killed both of his parents, and then he killed Harry, or he tried to. Nobody knows, I mean, you find out through the story, but I won't tell you here, why it didn't work. He used the same curse he used on Harry's parents, on him, but for whatever reason, it didn't kill Harry. It left Harry with that lightning-shaped scar that has become so infamous in pop culture, and it rebounded and destroyed him. Destroyed the wizarding Hitler almost completely. The wizarding Hitler was left barely alive and kind of escaped in a magical soul form and ran off to live in Bulgaria. And the first three books, Harry kind of faced a, a version of him, a shadow of him in the first book. He faced a memory of him in the second book, and then he faced the legacy of him and sort of one of his most faithful supporters in the third book. His most faithful supporter, Voldemort's most, most faithful supporter was named Wormtail. And 
At the end of the third book, Wormtail escapes, and he runs to Voldemort. And the fourth book is about Wormtail helping Voldemort regain his body. A bunch of other stuff happens too, but the climax, the moment, the darkness of the fourth book is the rebirth of this intensely racist, evil man who had many followers who were not totally convicted, who managed to keep themselves out of prison, and who basically hop right back on his side when he comes back, when he's powerful again, when he can do magic again. The danger goes from moments when Harry seeks it out and Voldemort is weak to times when Voldemort is overpowering, when Voldemort could be coming for him at any moment. Hogwarts is still sort of safe, but it isn't the safe haven that it is in the first three books by the end. And the other thing, that I think might interest you in this time, in this moment, is the government's response within the stories. There's a magic government. It's called the Ministry of Magic. And it has a minister of magic. And his response, when he is informed of the return of Lord Voldemort, is utter denial is a steadfast insistence on doing nothing and persistently silencing any critics who are claiming that there is danger. There is aggressive censorship that starts happening in the fifth book, but it is fascinating in the light of 2020 and the coronavirus pandemic to watch a fictional government be so insistent that there is no danger. But in any case, I hope you enjoy the fourth book. I think that there is a lot in there to like. And I love you. Take care, Emily.